When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one Mats Vlander, and Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. Your host of KickServeRadio.com is Andy Zoden. So, take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Welcome, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, joined by and featuring the great Mats Vlander, Johnny Levine, Texas Longhorn Hall of Famer. I'm Andy Zoden, and we got a lot of clay court tennis to talk about tonight, guys. But because of the fact that we're part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and because of the fact that Tennis Channel emanates out of Los Angeles, California. I see no other place to start than to pay our respects to the loss of Tony Graham, uh, who represented Matt's everything LA that LA tennis could ever be. It was all embodied in Tony Graham and what a character, a one of a kind guy, just 66 years of age. And as we talked about before we went on the show, like many of us, I mean, you know, Tony liked to have a good time, uh, but that's pretty young. Yeah, very young. Um, I used to know Tony pretty well and when I came on tour. And Tony Graham was one of those guys for me that that was what made America so exciting to go to is the characters like a Tony Graham um, and then, of course, Los Angeles. And and as I remember, he was good friends with Vida Skerlides, I think. Uh, and uh, I always saw Tony around. He was a great tennis player, really, really good, uh, clean technique. And like you said, the typical Californian fast court tennis player, good looking. Uh, and, uh, and he liked to have a good time. So, yeah, very, very sad day. Very much a Beverly Hills guy, Johnny. And uh and you were shocked to see that news. And, you know, Matt talks about the fact that he was good friends with Vitas. He was good friends with pretty much the sport of tennis. You know, this was a guy that once he met you, you felt like he was your friend. And I think I told you before we went on the air that when I was chatting with him one night at Spago in the stadium at Indian Wells, I felt like I was in the center of the universe you know, having a drink with Tony Graham at Spago at Indian Wells. Talk about your your fond memories of him. Here's Johnny. Well, Andy, yeah, I mean, uh, really sad news to hear about Tony. And, and uh, I knew him a bit, not super well, but he was always so friendly. And what a charismatic guy. Um, and, and like Matt said, everything about L.A. tennis. Right. You have to put uh, Tony Graham's name in there. And as Matt's also said, what a, he was a great tennis player. I think he reached top 100 and won a couple of a doubles titles on the tour and was a great collegiate player at UCLA. So just really sad news and and uh, definitely pay our respects to Tony Graham and his, and his family. Tough loss for tennis. Tony, we love you. And for those of us on our show, 
at Tennis Channel and tennis fans across the world, you will be missed. Okay, guys, we are coming upon, you know, really the the meat of the clay court season and a lot of great results. And I want to get to some of that stuff a little bit later in the show. But sometimes when we go into the season, you know, sort of in, in front of some of these grand slams, it's kind of good to take a look back in history. And, and what I wanted to do tonight is kind of chat with you both about kind of your, your not necessarily the greatest clay court players, but maybe some of your favorite clay court players of all time. And I think, you know, those, those lists always start with Nadal and Borg and on the women's side, Chris Everett uh, as the queen of clay, but, but Matt's, you know, obviously you're among the great clay court players of all time. The history books have you in the top five on everybody's list ahead of Federer and ahead of some amazing players with your three French open titles and, and 20 of your professional titles coming on clay. But when you look back on the time that you were out there, who did you look at and go, God, I love watching that guy play on a clay court. <laughs> um, well, I mean, there was a few guys, but I would say Manolo Orantes. Oh, very good one. Yeah, he used to come to uh, the Swedish Open uh, in Boston a few times. Obviously, he played Davis Cup for Spain in the days when Bjorn Borg was playing. My dad was really keen on Manolo Santana. And Manuel Orantes, uh, of course, Ely Nastasa was in there as well. But I think with Ely, the more I saw him play, the more I realized yeah, he maybe grew up on clay, but wasn't necessarily a clay court player. Orantes really was. Uh, he had the touch, uh, the lefty, beautiful backhand, and uh, just so strong. And these guys, they looked like he could run forever. But, um, I mean, it's hard to, to bypass Bjorn Borg. Bjorn Borg, I mean, right. of course, Rafa Nadal is, is a king of clay, but Borg didn't play that long. And, and I mean, he's only lost twice at the, at the French Open. Didn't play all the Barcelonas and, and Monte Carlo. He played sometimes, but not all of them. But, yeah, um, I think what's, what's really fun is when was the main part of the tour clay court specialists? And when were they not clay court specialists? And that's always very interesting. There was a time uh, when Sergi Bruguera, Juan Carlos Ferrero, Gustavo Curtin, uh, these guys were the best in the world, and they were super clay court specialists. Uh, and of course, you have to say Nadalis, but apart from that, um, there wasn't that many clay court specialists, uh, I don't think. And today, I think most guys are comfortable, but they are sort of hardcore specialist all of them so a few of us didn't know how to break an egg that's why we got to be clay court specialist andy johnny one of the names that i'm surprised didn't come out of matt's mouth is a guy that before nadal won 81 straight clay court matches this guy in 1977 won 53 straight and in fact it would be matt's first victim in his first french open win and that's guillermo Vilas. how is he not among the, the most favorite clay court players of all time, if not greatest clay court players of all time. Well, I was going to name three guys okay. and those three guys are going to come after obviously Bjorn Borg and Matt's Lander. So how do you like there that? You know. My three guys and Vilas was on that list for sure. What an amazing clay quarter, but two guys that you wouldn't really think of, but had tremendous success at the French open are Gustavo Cuerton and Jim Courier. Right. I mean, these are two guys that were tremendous on clay. And Courier with two French Opens and Querton with three, I believe. Right, Matt? That's right. Yeah. That, that's 
you got to be one of the, the greatest uh, on clay to win three French Opens. So, um, and he was really just a phenomenal clay court player in that one-handed backhand. So I definitely think you might need to sneak Quirton in there. Oh, I don't think you're sneaking him in at all. I think he's he he tops a lot of lists, particularly if you use the term favorite, because I think everybody loved Guga so much. Now, Matt's one guy that had kind of a a cup of coffee's worth of dominance on a clay court. And speaking of, as Johnny just mentioned, that great one-hander and almost a Velos type player was Tomas Muster. And he was so incredibly dominant for that period of time. I mean, obviously was it a car accident? Something happened that, that sort of um, derailed his career, but when he was at his best, that was a clay court specimen. Yeah, really he was. And I think that you could compare Thomas Muster to Guillermo Vilas. Right. I think very intimidating to play against. Um, looked like he never got tired, as strong as an ox. Um, and really just went about his own business, uh, Thomas Muster. I think that, you know, he didn't win more, I think, because on other surfaces, even though the hard courts and the grass is so different, you still played Thomas Muster, and because you just beat him on hard courts or indoors, well, shoot, I should have a chance even on the clay court. So I don't think that he, he necessarily carried the respect with him that he actually deserved. And I think players thought that, oh, well, you know, all he knows is how to play on a clay court, which is not true, uh, but uh, he was very much a clay court specialist. Um, he was one of the, the guys that made uh, the French Open become the hardest tournament in the world to win physically because of animals like Thomas Muster and Guillermo Vilas, of course. Um, but uh, going back to Gustavo Querton, I think for me, Querton was the first guy that won the French Open that made clay court tennis really cool yeah. and really fun and different from... It, it used to be keep the ball in play, run forever, don't get tired, and be strong mentally. Don't come to the net unless you're shaking hands. Gustavo Curtin won because he was more aggressive than the rest of them, and that's not the case with Sergi Bruguera. Uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero, uh, Alcaraz's coach, was pretty aggressive. Jim Courier, I mean, literally Jim Courier winning. Of course, Michael Chang won before Jim, but I think Jim is a very... Very big reason why Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras, and of course, Jim, how they dominated tennis because Jim broke through that barrier and won the French Open a couple of times. So there's some really important trailblazers, but for me, Gustavo Quirton is uh, who put tennis back on the map in South America after Guillermo Vilas had retired. Johnny, when uh, when Matt's mentioned Manolo Orantes, I, I couldn't help but remember when he, he really shocked or, uh, Jimmy Connors in the finals of the U.S. Open, almost in similar fashion to the way Arthur Ashe had shocked Jimmy at Wimbledon. Uh, but when you look back at Jimbo having won the U.S. Open on clay and, and some of the results that Mac had, you know, uh, so close against, uh, against Lendl in 84, were, were Mac and Connors, do they go down in the history books as underrated clay court players? I definitely think McEnroe does. Um, McEnroe loved clay, played a ton of clay in the juniors out in uh port washington out on uh, yeah port washington and was really really a great clay court player i don't believe jimmy connors was as much he won on the green clay the u.s open right um he could play on it but when he got up against a really good clay quarter he struggled 
McEnroe, um, I think, was really good on clay. Now, Mats would definitely be the one to to ask that question. But I want to go back to one statistic. And, Andy, that was a great call that you mentioned, Mooster. Mooster won 44 titles, and 41 of them were on clay. Wow. Okay. And and this guy was really coined the king of clay in the 90s. I mean, he was almost unbeatable on a clay court when you really think about it. I know he only had the one French, but, um, you know, there were some other great players in there. But but to have 41 titles out of your 44 on clay, and uh, that that's that's pretty incredible result right there. Well, I remember Matt's when he when he beat up on Michael Chang. I mean, he, poor Chang. I mean, Chang had won a French. And here he is up against Mooster, and Chang had this look on his face like, I remember winning this tournament. I don't remember playing anybody like this, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, but before that, when he did win that, when he did win that French match, I have to ask what your reaction was, going back to Chang, that is. When he beat Lendl, I think it was the round of 16, and it's, it's the famous underhanded serve and the cramping and the whole thing. How big of a shock was that to the tennis world when Michael Chang took down Lendl in 89 in the round of 16 of the French? I mean, it was incredible. And I would say that it's most probably as big a shock as it was when I beat Ivan Lendl in 1982, also in the fourth round, because both uh, Michael and I came from nothing. The French Open 82 was the first a tournament on tour that I won. I won a challenger before. Uh, and Michael Chang, I mean, we didn't really, he was he was a, a year and a half or at least a year younger than me. So uh, it, it was it was incredible to see Landel in those days because Landel was an animal in, in 1989. Uh, 88 was my good year. And then Landel came back and, and had a couple of great years. But he was basically unbeatable um, on a clay court. And I don't know what it was with Michael, but somehow the, the emotional um, output that Michael Chang actually put out uh, on a tennis court compared to how calm he seemed to be off the court and the way that he spoke, it seemed like it shocked Lendl. Oh. And I mean, that underhand serve, that shocked him too, because he, I believe he put the ball in play, but he, I think he came to the net and then sort of shanked the volley. And, and then Michael Chang is done. No, he beats Edberg in the finals, which was an unbelievably big upset as well. And you would have to put Edberg there with great clay court specialists, uh, a player, sorry, uh, that just didn't win a French Open as well because he could play from the back, he could come to the net. And, of course, Stefan, just like Roger Federer, grew up on clay. Johnny, last question before we go to break, and that is that, you know, the Americans have – taken such a beating over there and rightfully so i mean by reputation and just by looking at the statistics on on a piece of paper but chris everett defies all of that she is the undisputed queen of clay you look it up in the record books nobody else has won seven times there how much does that sort of redeem american tennis on clay and maybe how much of an understated record is that Everett winning seven times on clay for american tennis well, it was a, quite a long time ago, Andy, but let's, let's face it. I mean, she, she really was, grew up on the green clay and, and that was definitely her best surface. She couldn't get overpowered. They, she couldn't get served volleyed off the court by, by Martina Navratilova. And she was just, I mean, she never missed. So she was really, really a tough out when you, when you had her on dirt. Um, you know, let, let's face it. I mean, we haven't really seen an American woman 
other than Serena, who I believe won how many Frenches? Do we know that off the top of our heads? Couple? Better research next time, buddy. <laughs> I'm thinking off the top of my head, four, I want to say. Think a couple. Mark? I think oh, two, at least, three. Oh, at least that, because, I mean, she's won 23. Yeah, but. That's true. But it was her. Face it, uh, Gra- Graf won six. Gra- Graf five. was really yeah, an so. amazing clay quarter. But, yeah, there really hasn't been, um, you know, an American that has done anything even close to to Chris Severn and, and, and Serena for that matter too. So I think, I think we were in good shape having Chris Everett hold those records for American tennis, uh, on the women's side. And that's why I go back to Jim Courier because that's really an underrated, uh, result there for a guy from two French opens is just massive. And, uh, you know, we got to give him a lot of credit. Chang did get the, get the one victory and, uh, we'll see what, and Agassi got his one victory. And then speaking on behalf of the Europeans, Matt, so I'll let you have the last word here. Arantxa Sanchez, Vicario, and Justine Enna. I mean, you can't talk about the great female clay quarters of all time and not get to those two. No, absolutely. And again, uh, Justine Hanna played a completely different style. Of course, a clay court specialist, but but very aggressive from the back. Uh, and it, again, made clay court tennis be spectacular to watch it. Uh, compared to then maybe an Aranxa Sanchez, who was an unbelievable clay court player, but she sort of survived just like I did by not missing and, and playing uh, intelligent tennis uh, according to your own resources, but but not very exciting tennis. But but quickly, Jim Courier. I think what you know, there's like I said, some trailblazers. Jim Courier, with the help of Jose Higueras, was really the first guy that came onto a clay court, and he was running around to smack as many forehands as he possibly could. Uh, his backhand was decent. He had a huge kick serve. He set the point up, and then he dictated with the forehand. And before then, yeah, Bjorn Borg hit a lot of forehands, but it wasn't like he was trying to get around the ball and smack the forehands for winner, whereas Curry was really the first guy. And, of course, when we watch clay court tennis today, that's how you play. That's how you have to play. That's why the likes of Daniil Medvedev are struggling. The forehand isn't good enough. Um, and, uh, and that's why Nadal is so dominant because of the forehand, and that's why Novak Djokovic uh, you have to put his forehand up there because that's how he also wins the French Open. So Jim Courier, not because you're working for Tennis Channel, but yeah, <laughs> he was so important and very overlooked, like you stated, Johnny. Well, and then to to just round out that, let's give some credit to Nick Bolateri because a lot of what Jim Courier, Andre Agassi, and these guys were doing on a clay court was born of what Nick was teaching them in Florida. Um, before we go, uh, last comment, Monica Sellis got to mention her was on her way to a four peat on the clay, obviously when Gunter Parch got a hold of her and the rest was history with getting stabbed in the back. That was horrible. She won three straight had she won four straight. God only knows how long that could have lasted. All right, we'll go to break. And when we come back, guys, I want to talk to you about some of the players that would be considered incredibly unlikely to have had success on clay yet for whatever reason had some amazing results. We'll come back. We'll talk about some of the most unlikely clay court guys. You're listening to kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, talking a little clay court tennis in advance of the French Open. Don't go away.
Hey guys, AZ here with Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and I am joined by Diadem Business Development Manager, Doug Mouch. And Doug, let's face it, pickleball right now is all of the rage. However, it hasn't been exactly a seamless transition of bringing pickleball in with some of the the tennis clubs. And one of the pain points has been the sound of pickleball. And Diadem has really taken the bull by the horns with regard to some new technology that you guys have out that I think all pickleball players, tennis players, or people that have a concern about the sound of pickleball are going to be very excited. Tell us about it. This past November, we launched the Vice Paddle. And we knew it wouldn't be conforming to USAPA rules because it has the EVA foam in it. That EVA foam causes the paddle to have a little more of a trampoline effect. But our theory was it's going to help tennis elbow or pickleball elbow, help wrist issues. It will help people that need a little more power that don't have it. But the biggest factor that we have found that's helped many country clubs and communities is the noise factor. So this EVA foam device paddle, it really does not make any noise whatsoever. It's a very solid noise, more of a tennis racket. So it kind of mutes that plastic wiffle ball noise to almost zero. So it gives you a little more power, in in some cases a lot more. It's arm-friendly. It's audio-friendly. Where can people go online to find out more about Diadem's wide array of pickleball equipment and tennis equipment? Well, our website is diademsports.com. The paddle is the diadem vice. Go online, check it out. I'm Andy Zoden. Doug, thank you so much. We appreciate it and good luck with all you guys are doing. Thank you, Andy. Really appreciate your time. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking clay court tennis on kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And we talked about some of our favorites of all time, some of the greats of all time. And I want to kind of change gears ever so slightly, fellas, and talk about some of the guys that had amazing results on clay, or at least really, really good results that might have belied your expectations of them. And I'll throw out like a like a John Isner who had some amazing clay court results, particularly in Davis Cup, but had a couple of good goes of it. Gave Nadal, I remember everything he could handle. I, I want to say maybe had Nadal a couple of sets to love one time. So Isner would not have been a guy, Matt, that you would have thought of what was it about his game that allowed him to have the kind of success that he did in those early years on tour? Yeah, very interesting because, I mean, when he talks about it himself, because uh, the, the clay courts gave him a little more time uh, to get to the ball, and it, you didn't have to return serve that well um, on a clay court in, 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 any, in any era. Uh, you had a little more time. You just had to put the return deep. But I think John Isner's serve was a weapon anywhere, 
And that's why sometimes you see on a grass court, you see the opposite. You see guys that didn't necessarily have big serves that did really well on a grass court. It would be Agassi, it would be Andy Murray, for example. Uh, and, uh, and they survived on having great returns and being able to, uh, to do damage from the baseline, but not necessarily with, with free points on the serve. But their serve was a weapon on grass. And nobody's serve was a weapon on clay, really, except John Isner. No one is put in the same category as him. Of course, Victor Pecci, Yannick Noah, ah. Michael Stich had some good uh, results okay. on clay court as well. And that, that's because of their serves. But John Isner, uh, yes, very, very. And uh, there was a time when Nadal, I think, that was the only guy he did not want to play on a clay court was John Isner. Johnny, your era of of men's tennis uh, in in the United States was kind of a kind of a golden age of tennis, and so you were around a lot of these guys that that you know had some nice solid pro careers like yourself. Who was somebody maybe of your contemporaries that you watched go out there and went you know? And you and Eric Carita, for instance, a nice quarterfinal uh, appearance at, at the French Open in '88. Uh, but who were some of the guys that you played alongside that you thought, I'll be damned, look at that guy go on a clay court. Well, there's a there's a was a really good men's tennis player after I played in the nineties that that had his best results at the French Open. I'll have to we'll have to look it up, but Vincent Spadia, okay. American, did quite well on the clay courts. And that's a guy and, and, and the other one that did well, I think he might have gotten to the fourth round was Michael Russell, the yes. coach of Fr- Francis Tiafo. So there's two names and I see Andy smiling. He's yeah. enjoying these names. Uh, well, I love hearing Russell because I remember Brad Gilbert always calling him the little Jack Russell Terrier. Uh, because <laughs> well, Michael Russell coaches Taylor Fritz, guys, and and he's oh, actually Fritz, right, right, yeah, and that's why Fritz, I think, is becoming a good clay court player because Michael Russell knows what he's doing when it comes to clay court. Well, Johnny, I sat, I sat with you and Tom Fontana in in the in the box uh, on Stadium Court at the Open, and we watched Spadia take out Michael Chang in five sets. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember, but that's amazing. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to give you a result that Matt's will for certain remember it because it was a year after he won the French. Actually, he won the French that year, so he's going to know this one super well. And I'm going to I'm going to tell you about a guy, and the reason I know it because I believe it was the year after or that year that this guy shows up and plays a challenger in a town called. Um, it was in Italy. It was a town just outside of, of Milan. It'll come to me at Brescia, Italy. Christoph Roger Vasselin, semifinalist, 1983, U, French Open. And talk to me about, about that, Matt. Well, he took out Jimmy Connors in the quarterfinals that wow. year. And it was okay. one of those. I remember watching it, actually, uh, because I just couldn't believe it. And, of course, Connors in 83, still hoping to win the French because, of course, Bjorn Borg didn't play again. Um, Borg played his last French Open in 81 and then 82 he was never playing and then he was supposed to come back in 83 and then of course he didn't so both McEnroe and Connors I think thought that okay this this is this is our year and they beat Jimmy Connors with the most peculiar slice backhand um, and that didn't really do anything except it stayed so low and if we remember Connors' forehand didn't have any topspin so the way to play Connors was to hit it low with slice to the forehand. And I learned so much from watching Christoph Roger Vasselin. He then ended up playing Yannick Noah in the semifinals. And I bet you that this is the only match in the open era, and I would say maybe before, where the, your opponent 
is trying to coach you and help you. So Yannick is actually talking to Christophe Roger Vasselin in changeovers, trying to help him play a better match because he was, I guess, so nervous or tired. And Yannick wanted a match. He wanted a little bit of practice before the finals. And he then later, a couple of days later, beat me. But that was one of the biggest upsets, I think, in, in French Open history and certainly uh, in a tournament that I was part of. I was just thinking, guys, and Johnny, I'm going to go to you on this one because I know you had some pretty good uh, success against this guy uh, at the latter part of his career and when you were in your prime. How could we ever forgive ourselves if we talked about some of the greats and some of our favorites in clay court tennis history and Harold Solomon's name come up and, for that matter, not Eddie Dibbs either? So, Johnny, I know you had a real nice win over Harold. I believe it was in Memphis, but I remember – if memory serves, you guys correct me if I'm wrong. He would go out and play Velos in the final of the Italian or the French, whatever, and drop like 20 pounds. He couldn't even keep his shorts on by the time these matches were over. They'd stay out there so long. Talk about Solly, Johnny. Well, I'm I'm so glad you brought up Dibs and Solomon, Andy. That 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 those are two classic Americans that always did well at the French. I believe that Dibs for sure. I think he got to the semifinals one year. And uh, I actually beat him in, at Boston Sorry. on hard Sorry. on, on <laughs> clay courts. Research next on the time, buddy. Okay. Oh wow. Okay. Uh, so uh. I want to mention a player that's played the Arizona Tennis Classic. Um, he played it not this last year, but the the year before. Who was a surprise semifinalist, and it's a guy that I absolutely love his game. He struggled a little bit lately. He's an Italian guy, and he's been doing great. And he's got a fantastic one hander. Do we know who that is? Chachinato? There you go. Love that guy. Okay. And, 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 and boy, did he have a great run that year when he got to the semis in 2018 in the French Open. Matt, I'm going to give you the last word before we go to break, because this is one of the most, you would never think that I would mention this player among unlikely players to accomplish something amazing on clay, but yet I'm going to. And that is Pete Sampras. In the Davis Cup final, 1995, in Moscow, what he did single-handedly to lead the United States to victory over Russia might be one of the greatest clay court accomplishments we've ever seen, is it not? Oh, absolutely. I've seen uh, uh, videotapes of of those matches. And I mean, he wasn't really supposed to play the doubles, I don't think, but they put him in. And he couldn't really play the singles on Sunday, but they put him in. So, yeah, huge, huge wins for Pete Sampras. And I always thought that that Pete was a little bit unfair to himself somehow at the French Open because I never really thought that he – I know he tried as hard as he could. He won Rome – uh, but with that game, I felt that, of course, Pete Sampras, uh, as most people know, he had a two-handed backhand at some point. It just He's one of those players, it turns out that his serve became the greatest serve of all time in the men's game. And I think it became more of a weapon than was expected, than even was expected by Pete. And therefore, it made sense to not play long rallies when you're returning if you're Pete Sampras. And that's that's how he then became... Uh, that's it. That was his style. But early on, um, he was, you know, he, he was a baseline of Pete Sampras. And then that serve just changed everything because he was getting so many free points. But I, I really feel that Pete is the player that um, I wish that he would have won the French Open because he he's not always mentioned 
uh, together with Rafa and Novak and Roger. He's on 14 slams, of course, dominated Wimbledon as much as anyone ever did. Uh, in terms of big match player, Pete Sampras. I would put him in to play for me on any surface uh, at any time except maybe on the clay court. So uh, I wish Pete would have won the French Open so we could mention him in the same breath as we do the big three, I'll be honest. Well, at least out of the Sampras-Agassi era, we got that one great French Open when Andre Cre- uh, completed the career Grand Slam and beat uh, beat Medvedev, the original Medvedev, in the final, <laughs> Andre Medvedev, uh, from two sets down. The, you know, the famous rain delay, Brad Gilbert in the locker room comes out, takes out Medvedev in five sets and completes the slam in 1999. All right. When we come back, let's talk about what's going on in the news. Some really good nostalgia there. Hopefully those of you that are a little bit more of age can look back and uh, and appreciate coming from one of the true great clay court players of all time. A good look at some clay court history. You're listening to kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. A look at what's going on these days. When we get back. Hi guys, Sarah Z here with a kick serve quick serve with my friend and nutrition guru, Courtney Ward with Body Fuse. Courtney, as we ladies start to get, oh, shall I say more advanced or more experienced in our life, our fitness levels take a hit if we're not careful, don't they? You know, Sarah, they do, unfortunately, and I highly suggest supporting your activities at every stage, pre-workout, intra-workout, and post-workout. So you want to think about a pre-workout. We have a product called Endgame, and that basically will allow you to increase your energy and focus during your workout. And then intra-workout is almost just as critical. So we have branched-chain amino acids called BCAA 311. And that's a perfect product to allow your body to almost refuel while you're working out. It's a super hydrator as well as a muscle recovery while you're working out. And then finally, protein is critical post-workout and body fuse lean protein is one of the highest quality proteins on the market. Very, very effective, a slow, long burn, six to eight hours after ingestion and after that workout. So your energy, you're not, you're not going to crash and your energy continues. You're feeding your muscles and you just feel great. So with these three elements, pre, intra and post-workout, you're really going to support yourself at all stages in any activities, in intense workouts, tennis matches, body strength conditionings, uh, sessions, etc. Fantastic. And one more time, Body Fuse bodyfuseusa.com. Well, I'm Sarah Z. She's Courtney with Body Fuse. And now back to more tennis talk with the Kickserve Radio Boys. Welcome back, everybody. Kickserveradio.com. Tennis Channel Podcast Network final segment. What a fun couple of segments talking about some of the great clay quarters of all time. And I have to say, I'm going to pat myself on the back for coming up with Solomon and Dibs. And 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 I've been told by a couple of baseball guys that listen to me on the air that say I may need uh, I may need Tommy John surgery if I keep patting myself on the back as often as I do. But I'm going to do it anyway uh, with regard to that one. Matt, these Andreva sisters 
are like all the rage now, 18 years old, 16 years of age, these Russian sisters, and they're coming on like gangbusters. What do you know, if anything more than that? Well, I mean, it's it's brilliant. Obviously, um, uh, Russian women have done so well over the years uh, on the women's tour, which has been uh, revolutionary because um, Russian tennis players, especially women in the 70s and 80s, there really wasn't any. They weren't allowed to travel. So it's huge. And we've had so many great champions. So to see two sisters, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, I saw Mira play uh, against Sabalenka in in Madrid right. here a few days ago. And yeah, she got overpowered. But it's it's unbelievable what um, what teenagers can do and how good these two sisters are in terms of knowing how to do everything. And of course, they're just going to get better because physically you get stronger but uh it's so welcome uh these new faces and it's happening not just on the men's tour but on the women's tour too so uh yeah just really really exciting a recreation of the maleva sisters that played alongside yourself at that point in time yeah exactly and there's three of them actually right exactly yeah. Yeah. um manuela uh, katarina and was it magdalena i believe yeah, yeah. that's I mean, excellent that? wow yeah. Three of them, and they were all winning matches and slams. And of course, uh, one of the the oldest, I believe, um, became a, a great player. And they're all great players. But yeah, just so cool the whole sibling thing. And it can only help someone like uh, the Andreva sisters that there is somebody out there that is your best friend, your sister, and in good times and bad times. You you need that uh, support. And when it comes from a family member, holy smokes! Something else that's newsworthy, Johnny, and I'll toss it to you because I know that tennis as a sport is relieved and you have always been a backer of this guy and a fan of this guy. And Novak Djokovic will be back at the U S open. And I think we've gotten to a point where we all agree that that is way overdue. I think we talked about prior to Indian Wells that we were all very disappointed that uh, he wasn't going to be playing at Indian Wells or Miami. And it gave obviously Carlos Alcaraz and uh, uh, Daniel Medvedev an opportunity to shine and, and to take those two sunshine tournaments. But Djokovic will be back. And how much of a lift does that give to the U.S. Open if it even really needs that lift? Well, I certainly think it's going to give it a lift. I mean, the last time he played there, he was going for the Grand Slam. That was his last match. And, um, you know, he with the nerves and just the 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 moment and the way Medvedev was playing, it was an incredible final. Just very tough to overcome uh, the the just the moment and uh, it was tough for him. So I'm sure he's going to be anxious and looking forward to getting back to the U S open where he's played some of his best tennis of his career. And it'll be very exciting to, if he's in, you know, good health, um, which I hope he is. And then obviously, you know, the time before he got to the finals, he had that mishap with the ball and getting, getting disqualified. So I just think he's, primed for that u.s open and and uh that could be could be one that that he'd definitely be the favorite if he's healthy he might be the favorite long before that Matt, because he might be the favorite come the french open that being said he's taken a couple of losses uh that have been a little uncharacteristic of him but we've always said if you're gonna get novak get him in a best of three because in a best of five that is a very different animal if we were to say Novak Djokovic is going to play Carlos Alcaraz in the French Open final. A, do you think that that's the better choice of a final? And if so, how does that one end up? 
<laughs> well, if Novak is able to get to the finals to begin with, I say he's playing pretty well. I actually, of course, we know that he pulled out of Madrid, uh, I believe because of his arm, but because of an injury, he chose not to play. And I actually think that for Rafa Nadal, I think he needs to play clay court matches. He needs to find his game. He needs to understand uh, what he needs to do with his forehand and what kind of damage he can do. Is it with spin? Is it with height? Whatever. Novak Djokovic, I think he, it's actually better for him because I think the worst thing that, that uh, Novak Djokovic could do with the style that he plays is play a lot of matches and have to work physically really hard because he does on a clay court. He's not dictating as much as Rafa Nadal is. Uh, I think it's better that, that the other players don't see him for Novak's sake and that it's just Novak Djokovic, oh, the greatest player of all time. That's my opponent rather than... Well, Novak lost in the second round of Monte Carlo. He lost in the second round of Madrid, and he he hasn't won. He lost in in um, against Dusan Lajovic back home in 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 Bosnia, I should say, next door. So I think it's better for him. But again, um, yeah, Novak Djokovic is a click with specialist, and and he's tough to beat. Alcaraz Djokovic. Would that be the dream final of the French Open? How could it not? Yeah, I mean, because of the way that they move and the way that they play, I say the tennis would be the most fun between them. But how can you, on the other hand, overlook a Rafa Nadal against Carlos Alcaraz? I mean, that would be just spectacular. But the more Alcaraz is winning, the more pressure he takes and the less pressure, especially uh, Novak Djokovic with field. Rafa, I think he has enough pressure uh, on, his, on his shoulder. I think it's a little more intriguing if you have people from different countries. That's my own for Absolutely. I think it's 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 the previous generation, if you will, which I think Djokovic and Nadal still represent that versus the now, the present. These are the guys. It's, you know, it's Sinner and it's Alcaraz and it's, you know, from the Americans, TFO and Fritz. And all those guys. For me, an Alcaraz Djokovic final. Give it to me all day long. Johnny, I'm going to give you the last word before we go tonight because as we speak, sitting here on a Wednesday night, your Phoenix Suns are in a love to hole to my Denver Nuggets. Uh, by the time people hear this, you're probably going to be tied. I'm not ready to write this thing off. I'm still scared to death. What do you think the Suns need to do to turn this thing around? Well, can you give them a bench? Because they don't have one. And that's been their big struggle. They just, you know, it's just tough to rely on three guys that are going to cover you the whole game. I mean, these you get deep into the playoffs and the bench is what wins the championships for the for the teams that that uh that are going to be that successful. And I think it's very difficult to put so much pressure on Booker and Durant, two of the greatest players in the NBA right now. And now with Chris Paul, we don't know his health for the next game. It's looking pretty tough, but uh, like you said, Andy, you know, anything can happen and the Suns get back to their home floor and it, it could be a different story. But I, my bet is Joker all the way. That guy is just phenomenal. Well, I'll tell you, I remember back in the day when Hakeem Olajuwon came up just a little bit short to David Robinson for the MVP, and that was a year that the uh, that the Rockets won a championship. And now I'm seeing Jokic, although he's won it two years in a row, and I wasn't shocked at all that he didn't win it this year. And, and you can't really argue with Joel Embiid. He's phenomenal. That being said, I think that what Jokic showed me in game two, putting that team on his back, 
when out of nowhere, Jamal Murray could not throw the ball in the Atlantic Ocean that night. And yet the Nuggets were able to summon something in the fourth quarter. And to your point, I think maybe our bench just gave us a little bit more than the Phoenix bench did. That being said, I am not going until that thing is over. It is not over. I'm still scared to death of Phoenix. Matt's just because we're talking NBA and we've got a LeBron James versus Stephen Curry series. Maybe that's something that you can speak to a little bit, just seeing those two guys in their mid thirties going at each other. Does that kind of bring you into interest at all? Yeah, absolutely. Andy, I used to live in New York city and I actually was at Madison square garden when the New York Knicks played uh, Houston uh, Rockets in the... Oh, I remember it fondly. Exactly. And it was actually the night that uh, O.J. Simpson was... You were at that game? Yeah, I was at that game. He was on wow. the loose and we spent more time watching the TV screens, TV monitors uh, outside by the beer stands than we did uh, maybe watching. But I remember watching. I went to quite a few Knicks. No, again, I mean, Steph Curry, Leo, LeBron James, Rafa Nadal, Novak Djokovic. Right. These guys are... It's so cool that they're doing it, not just in tennis, but they're doing it, Tom Brady, of course, in other sports. And, and it's just making sports. Um, these guys are, are legends and heroes, and they transcend the sport, and they become athletes. They're no longer basketball players. They're, not, they're spokespeople. They're celebrities. But, but they mean so much to the world because the longevity that they have and the will to still show up and win with or without a bench – is unbelievable. So the, the the fighting spirit of these 30-something athletes that we have today, I mean, I can't relate because I quit before I got to that age. Johnny, I think we've, we've, we've scored points here because we've got Matt speaking with excitement in his voice about the NBA. I will take that as a win. And on behalf of the great Matt Spielander, the great NBA basketball fan, Matt Spielander, and Johnny Levine, I'm Andy Zoden. Thanks for listening. we got a great season of tennis ahead. We're in the clay court season. We'll be talking about grass court tennis before we know it, and we'll look forward to seeing you guys real soon right back here on kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network.